All right, well, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, I see I am with uh, the true fans. Uh, um, Yeah, so we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and get started now. Um, But as you guys might be able to tell, we are living in some of the most uh, stressful and emotional times that any man can live through. Uh, It's the NBA playoffs, and um, it's even more intense and gut-wrenching when your team is playing. Um, And for me, it's a little too much. I can't stomach it. Uh, So if if I'm around you, don't talk to me about it. I don't want to know. I can't handle it. And it wasn't long, uh, it wasn't that long ago, um, pretty recently, that uh, Tiff and I, we were talking, and somehow the topic of dunking came up. Yeah, dunking, like in basketball. And I think I made some sort of reference to how great an, uh, an ability it would be uh, if I could dunk. And, I mean, so she asks me this question, or some sort of question like it, and so she asked me, like, would you rather be able to, I know, I was like, like, be a better communicator or be able to dunk? And I was like, what kind of question is that, right? The answer is dunk, right? Yeah, amen, yeah, right? I mean, it doesn't, it seems like such an obvious question, right? The answer is always going to be dunk, right? For us that cannot, that's just a plain matter of fact, right? Would I rather be smarter or dunk? Right? Would I want a better job, be more organized, or, you know, whatever, you know, be buffer? Uh, doesn't matter, right? There's only one correct answer, and that is to dunk. There are some questions, though, that we must answer in life, and uh, they're a little bit more weightier, okay? They're ones that greatly impact our lives, to which, you know, the answer might not be so obvious. So questions that might have like multiple options or multiple answers, right? None that may necessarily be right or wrong, right? Tough questions that we would need to answer. Things like what kind of career or what kind of job you might pursue, Uh, who to date, uh, who to marry, right? Or which church to attend or maybe even where you might want to live. But in tonight's passage, Jesus will ask one question that truly matters, right? A question that will determine eternal life or eternal death, right? It's a question whether people want to or not, right? Before their life is over, they must and they will answer. And so our passage tonight is a short passage, uh, and we'll split it into three parts. Uh, So... Uh, it's going to be Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33, uh, and we'll be going into it. Uh, the first part is the question uh, in verses 22 to 29. Um, that is the question. Uh, the second part, uh, verses 29 to 30, uh, that's the answer. Verses 29 to 30, that's the answer. And then lastly, verses 31 to 33, uh, it's the lesson. So the question, the answer, and the lesson. Okay, so before we get into the Word, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Okay, let's pray. Um, Dear Lord, we just uh, thank you for 
on this opportunity uh, to look into your word and to uh, really come to know who you truly are uh, and for us, we must respond to who you are and we will uh, have to give an answer to who we believe that you are. And how we answer and how we live uh, will determine the rest of our lives and it will determine the rest of our eternity. Uh, so we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, open our minds, open our hearts um, to your word. Uh, may you use your word and your Holy Spirit to convict us uh, to be better worshipers and better followers and better disciples of you. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, uh, so I'll go ahead and read for us our... Our text tonight, and then we'll just kind of go through it as we go along. Uh, so Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 27 to 33. Uh, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And as he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Okay, so number one, this is the question that Jesus um, proposes to his disciples. In verse 27, it says that Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Last week in our passage, uh, the disciples and Jesus, they were in a town of Bethsaida, like kind of like on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And so now they're journeying from Bethsaida to the Sea of Galilee, or from the Sea of Galilee, uh, to this region called Caesarea Philippi, which is further north, uh, probably about maybe 25, possibly 30 miles north. And so during their trip, Jesus then begins to bring about a discussion by raising a question to his disciples. And it wasn't uncommon in those days for students uh, or disciples to travel with their teachers or rabbis. Uh, so when the teacher goes from town to town, you know, which would usually be accomplished by you know, walking or going on foot, uh, the students might have an opportunity to kind of go and travel with him. Uh, and it would often be along these walks um, that the teacher would take some time uh, to teach his students in a more kind of intimate or personal setting. Now, if you take um, the average walking speed of a person uh, to be anywhere between two to four miles per hour, uh, we're talking then maybe about somewhere roughly between an eight to ten hour walk, um, without probably without any stops. So basically, uh, in those days, that might be at least a full day's journey. Uh, to kind of put it in perspective, um, that would be kind of like walking from here to, uh, let's say, like uh, Redwood City or Palo Alto. 
And so that's about 25 to 30 miles. So, you know, you can imagine that it's a fairly long walk. Right? I mean, you think about the, all the different places that you would have to pass just to get to your destination. If you start here, I don't, I, this is kind of roughly the order, I think, right? You start from here, you go, and you keep walking, reach Daly City, keep walking, San, San Bruno, uh, walking, you know, Millbrae, Burlingame. I mean, it's pretty far, and you're still not there. And then, you know, San Mateo, um, I don't know, San Carlos, and then maybe Redwood City, and then Palo Alto. I mean, it's, it's pretty long. Um, and that's without any stops. And so, you know, for them, in those days, we're talking, you know, probably a much more rugged road, right? No shade, uh, maybe or probably sun, you know, in sandals. So it could potentially take them even longer. Um, if you want to put it in driving terms, uh, maybe it's from here to San Diego. Uh, so you can imagine, uh, this is a long time uh, to be traveling together, right? Uh, so they have a good opportunity to have kind of like a lengthy uh, discussion or for Jesus to provide them uh, a lengthy lesson. And it's during this journey then that Jesus takes the time to give his disciples what might be their most important lesson of all. In Luke's account, uh, Jesus was actually praying alone. Uh, so at some point, uh, maybe like in the beginning of their journey or maybe they're taking a break, uh, Jesus is praying and the disciples are with him. And at that time then, Jesus, to ch Jesus chooses to ask them two important questions. Right? So the first question he asks his disciples is, who do people say that I am? Now, to the people at that time, Jesus was probably the most recognizable, talked-about figure that had come in a long, long time. Right? It's been close to maybe 400 years um, before John the Baptist that a prophet had been sent by God. Right? A long time since someone was given the words of God to speak to the people. Right? Someone who could uh, explain the law and the prophets with absolute clarity and authority. And it may have been an even longer time since the people of Israel had seen a miracle from God or his prophets. But in these days, as we've kind of gone along through Mark, it's almost like the opposite, right? Where the supernatural events that they are experiencing are people getting demon-possessed, right? These are like miracles of evil origin, you can say. And so by this time, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that almost everyone in Israel would have at least heard of what Jesus has said and done, uh, if not witnessed it for themselves. And so it must have been apparent to everyone that this was no ordinary man, right? But who exactly was he? Right? Up until now, uh, Jesus and his disciples have come across you know, a number of different kind of people in their journey. Uh, they encountered, like we mentioned, uh, people that were demon-possessed, uh, and many or all of whom, or at least the demons, right? I mean, they, they seem to recognize that Jesus uh, is the Son of God. They've come across those who, uh, their faith in Jesus, uh, may have saw him as someone who was able to forgive them of their sins or heal them. And, you know, we might be inclined to be able to think that, you know, these types of people, you know, they very well could have believed that Jesus uh, was the Messiah, but who do these people say that I am? And so, uh, so the disciples, uh, in the next verse, they provide the answer. Uh, so in verse 28, they told him, saying, 
John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. From what the disciples have gathered, the majority of the people saw Jesus as some sort of prophet. The disciples said many believed that he was a specific prophet, right? namely John the Baptist or Elijah. And if you look back at chapter 6, uh, it seems like their answer is pretty accurate. right? It seems to be indicative of what the people thought at that time. And as uh, some review, if we look back at chapter 6 of Mark, if you remember, uh, Jesus is becoming more and more well-known uh, to the point that you know, King Herod has heard of everything that's been going on. And so the people are having a discussion of who Jesus was. Uh, and in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 14 and 15, it reads, And King Herod heard of it, uh, for his name had become well-known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And then even just one chapter earlier in chapter 5, I believe, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus raised up a child from the dead, if you remember. Right? And that's something that Elijah did. Right? And before John the Baptist came, who was the last prophet that God had sent? To the people, All right? The last book of the Old Testament, it was, it was Malachi, right? And what was the last thing that God said before there were no more prophets, right? Just before there was going to be a period of silence for about 400 years, right? In Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he's, to the peop- in the people's mind, then he's got to be Elijah, Right? And besides, right, they know right, Elijah didn't die. Right? God took him up in the whirlwind. So maybe this is him, like God said. Right? And the last thing that God said was that he was going to send us Elijah. Right? And it's been quiet for all these centuries. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus is here and he's doing these great and powerful miracles. So maybe the day of the Lord is coming And that's why God has sent him. Others said that Jesus was a prophet, like in the olden days, right? Maybe it's not Elijah. Maybe it's just kind of like another prophet, right? And and that can make sense too, right? I mean, who else besides, you know, a prophet of God could do these kind of miracles that they were seeing? And it doesn't mention it in Mark's account, but in Matthew's account of this passage, the disciples said that some of the people believed that Jesus was Jeremiah. So now, the, the idea behind Jesus being Jeremiah, or you know, why this could be Jeremiah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little wild. Uh, there's apparently some Jewish tradition, or you know, we would think of it maybe as like an urban legend, that uh, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant in a cave. Uh, and this could be confirmed uh, in the apocryphal writings of uh, Maccabees. Uh, so, you know, um, the Maccabees, it's uh, in the Apocrypha, so it's, you know, not what we would consider uh, in the Word of God. I mean, it's not Scripture, um, but scholars do believe that it does hold, you know, some historical value. Uh, 
And this might kind of help explain why the, the Jews kind of thought what they did. And so in, in, in 2 Maccabees 2, it says this. It, it talks about what Jeremiah did, and it says, Jeremiah came and found a cave, and he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense, and he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up to mark the way, but could not find it. And when Jeremiah heard of it, he rebuked them and declared, This place shall be unknown until God gathers his people again and shows mercy. And I mean, this is, you know, this is like Indiana Jones national treasure kind of stuff, right? I mean, but if this tradition is strong enough, it might help explain why people might think that Jesus is Jeremiah, right? I mean, maybe God is bringing the people back. Right? He's showing us mercy in ways that we've never seen before. He's healing people on a scale that has never been done before. Maybe, maybe this is it. So maybe this is, maybe this is Jeremiah. And then you've got others saying, right, as his disciples said, uh, this is John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist raised from the dead. Right? Um, this is another plausible but maybe less likely conclusion. Right? We know what an incredible ministry that John the Baptist had. So maybe, in his, maybe John the Baptist's mission, maybe it wasn't done, right? And God was causing all of these miraculous powers through him. And now that, you know, they're seeing all these miracles, including someone being raised from the dead. So, I mean, anything is possible. Right. And, and all of this to say, like, these people or the crowds, they're not crazy, okay? Maybe outside of the Jeremiah one, you know, there's, there's sound biblical reasons why they think Jesus is who they think that he is. But then Jesus, in verse 29, right, it says he continues to question them. Right? But who do you say that I am? But now the question, it comes to the disciples. Right? You told me what everyone else thinks. I mean, right, you told me what everyone else is saying, but who do you say that I am? At this point in time, the disciples have been with Jesus for, you know, by some estimations, maybe two and a half years or close to two and a half years. Right? This is two and a half years of witnessing the works of Jesus. Right? They saw him feed thousands of people twice. Right? They saw him heal the blind. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him walk on water. Right? They also heard him teach. He was teaching from the scriptures, teaching about the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But also, for the twelve, you know, their relationship with Jesus, it wasn't like the relationship between Jesus and the crowds. Right? The twelve, they traveled with him, right? they followed him, they, they lived with him. They probably had, you know, who knows how many hours of discipleship under him, right? Just them and Jesus, just like they're having now. But soon, the, their time with Jesus would come to a close, right? Jesus' ministry lasted about maybe three years, so there's probably a few to six months, maybe, uh, left before the disciples are going to be without him. For now, Jesus' Galilean ministry has ended, uh, and it won't be long then before Jesus will make his way to Jerusalem and then to the cross. So the time has come for Jesus to ask the most important question in the history of all humanity. 
point. So can the disciples, are they able to put everything that they've seen and heard together and figure it out? And so from here to probably the rest of this chapter, uh, we reach what you know, could be seen as the high point of this gospel. And it's fitting because we're right here in the middle of Mark. So for the disciples right now, right, it doesn't matter what all those other people are saying. Right? For the disciples, Jesus is looking at them and he's asking them, what are you saying? Right? I'm not building my church. Right? I'm not building my church on what they say. I'm building my church on what you say that I am or who you say that I am. This question, who do you say that I am, is not just for the crowds to answer, and it's not just for the disciples to answer. Right? We understand that this question is something that everyone must answer. Right? It's the most important question that you will ever have to answer. And no one will leave this life without having to give an answer one way or another. Right? Who is Jesus? And until you answer this, Nothing else matters, right? And how you answer determines how you live now and how you will live in eternity. And so we see the disciples' answer. So this is number two. This is the answer. End of verse 29. Peter says, so he answers and said to him, you are the Christ. Right. Any shroud of mystery has been removed. If there was any doubt, their vision of Jesus is clear. Right. This is the very first confession, I believe, of Jesus Christ in this gospel, aside from the introductory statement in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. This gospel starts with the declaration that Jesus is the Christ. And all the things that kind of happened from the beginning up until now shows us why Peter and the disciples can come to this conclusion, you are the Christ. Now, though the people's view of Jesus may have been clouded, the disciples' view of Jesus has become very clear. Not unlike the blind man whom Jesus healed just a few verses before. When the Son of God came before the people, they couldn't really make out who he was. They could tell that he was special. They probably knew that he was sent by God. But to them, he was kind of indistinguishable from any of the other prophets. Kind of like the trees walking around. But to the disciples, right, God had opened their eyes, and now they can see clearly. They can see clearly, or they can see Jesus clearly for who he was. Right? This wasn't someone merely sent by God. This was God. He is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would save them from their sins. In Matthew's account of this event, Jesus commends Peter because He says, and he commends Peter for his confession because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
You see, this confession and the faith required to make this confession can only be the work of God. There's no other way that we can recognize Jesus for who he is unless God reveals it to us. And that revelation from God is the only answer. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God who has come to make atonement for our sins by dying on the cross. He would rise from the dead and he would return to his Father. And then he will return to us to fulfill all the rest that has been promised of the Messiah. And in verse 30, we see what happens next. Jesus says to the disciples and to Peter, he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And this happens kind of a lot in the Gospel of Mark. And so this isn't the first time that Jesus doesn't, or this is the first time, not the first time that Jesus tells you know, someone or people not to tell um, anyone who he is. You know, which is you know, kind, of, kind of odd, and I think we kind of talked about it in the very beginning when it first happened. And it is still kind of confusing, right? Because this is, this is, this is good news, right? You know, the Christ is here. Right. Shouldn't they want to tell people? Shouldn't they want to tell everyone? Well, there might be a few reasons. Um, I'll give you a couple. Uh, one, uh, it's possible that the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ would have caused confusion among the people. Um, it may have uh, caused the crowds uh, to push for Jesus to be the Messiah that they wanted, right? a conqueror or a king, right? which he is, but for Jesus, it's not the time for that just yet. All that attention could possibly get in the way of his ultimate destination, which was the cross, and he wanted to ensure that nothing would come between him and his mission. Now, we'll take some time now just to kind of as an aside to get an idea as to why so many people had this kind of expectation uh, that the Messiah would be this king Right, and understand that they're not wrong in thinking this uh, because there are lots and lots of Old Testament passages that speak to the coming of the Messiah as a ruler. Um, but for us, uh, we'll just highlight just a couple uh, of familiar passages um, that may have shaped these people's expectation. Um, so if you like, uh, you could turn with me to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And this is a pretty uh, familiar passage for for many. Uh, This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. This is what it says. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Uh, And then if you like, if you could uh, turn with me or just listen, um, this is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. And it reads, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, 
and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to his increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Right, the problem, right, it wasn't that the people weren't expecting or hoping for the Messiah to come, but they were just expecting the Messiah to look a little different. Right, the Messiah they wanted or were expecting, again, was going to be a conqueror, a king, right? Someone that was going to overthrow their oppressors, to gather the people together and establish an everlasting kingdom. Right? Now, this type of messianic expectation is very strong and very common. So strong and common that even John the Baptist himself was questioning if Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist if you thought anyone would know who the Messiah is, it would be him, right? But in chapter 7 of Luke, um, as, the, as the narrative goes, John is still in prison, uh, and his disciples come to him, and they're telling him about all the things that Jesus is doing. And for some reason, John seems confused. And so he sends two of his disciples, and he asks them to go to Jesus, and he, asks, he sends them and asks them, to ask Jesus, wait, are you the one, or the, are you the expected one, or should we be looking for someone else? John the Baptist. Right, so these people, including John the Baptist, right, they weren't getting this idea of the Messiah you know, out of nowhere. Right, we look back at these Old Testament passages, and it's pretty clear that the Messiah is going to establish his kingdom, and he will rule it, and it will be a time of peace and prosperity. Just not yet. And for us to kind of help understand right, the people's expectation and why they wanted this Messiah so bad, right, it helps for us to maybe understand their situation. Right? You see, ever since Judah fell to Babylon all the way back in you know, 587 B.C., right, the nation, it was never free. Right? First it was the Babylonians, then came the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans, you know, which they're under now, right? So for you know, almost 600 years, these people are living right, under a, a rule of a foreign king, right? Never again have they ever experienced the type of peace and prosperity that they did under their own kings, like David and Solomon, right? That was their peak, right? That's what, that's what their nation should have looked like, and that's what they wanted their nation to look like. But instead, right, these people, they're poor, Right? They're hungry, you know, many probably living day to day, you know, wondering if they'll have enough food to eat or maybe if they're going to have enough clothes uh, to keep them warm at night. Right? They wanted someone to save them. They wanted someone to free them from their oppressors. Right? They wanted a king of their own. But Jesus, right? Jesus wasn't him. Right? He wasn't that guy. He wasn't raising an army, or he wasn't talking about overthrowing Rome. Right? As much as these people may have wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, in many ways he didn't fit the part. Right? The people wanted their immediate situation fixed. 
right? but yet they didn't realize or remember that the Messiah was also sent to fix an even greater need that they had, right? a greater need that we all have. So again, one reason Jesus may not have wanted the disciples to reveal who he was to the people um, is because perhaps the people may have had the wrong, would have had the wrong expectation of him, and that would hinder or get in his way of his true purpose for coming to the earth, at least this time. Uh, a second possible reason as to why Jesus didn't want to uh, the disciples to reveal who he was or who he is, as we'll see in the next verses, is that it's also possible that uh, for the disciples to make any proclamations of who Jesus really was, right, they needed to fully understand Jesus' purpose. And that leads us to uh, our last section, right, section three, or our last couple verses, and that's the lesson. Right? This is the lesson that Jesus has for his disciples. Now in verse 31, he sa- it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So now that the disciples are clear who Jesus is, right, then he begins to teach him, or he begins to teach the disciples what the plan really is. Right? He must be rejected, he has to suffer and die at the hands of the leaders of Israel, uh, and rise again three days later. So as you can imagine, hearing this type of news was probably something that was you know, pretty hard for the disciples to hear. Right here they are, they had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, right? The one that Israel has been waiting for for so long. Right? He was supposed to fulfill all the prophecies and promises of Scripture concerning the Messiah. Right? He was supposed to rule and to reign, right? And he will. But it seems like, as so many also may have not seen or forgotten. Right, that the Messiah has to first suffer and die. Right. These passages are also found, and these prophecies are also found in the Old Testament as well concerning the Messiah. A lot of them we see in the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, you're familiar with uh, the passages of the suffering servant. Right. Um, they're found all throughout uh, Isaiah's book, uh, chapter 42, 49, uh, 50, uh, and then 52 and 53. Um, we'll just read a couple so that we can kind of get an idea of you know, the prophecy of you know, the suffering Messiah. And so if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 50, uh, we'll read verses 5 and 7. So Isaiah 50, 5 and 7. And it reads this, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I will not be disobedient nor did I turn my back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. And then we'll look at one more. This one's a little longer, but I think it's... um, probably a little more familiar to many of us. It's Isaiah chapter 53, uh, so just a couple chapters over, verses 1 through 11. And there it reads, 
Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us Like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who is considered that he was cut off cut out cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due his grave was assigned to wicked men yet he was with a rich man in his death and because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth but the lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. And that's why the Messiah came. And Jesus uh, is teaching this to his disciples. Right? He's teaching them that this is why I came. Perhaps in this long discussion, they may have you know, spoken of other things. But for now, you know, this was uh, the topic at hand. And in verse 32, uh, back to Mark, he sa- it says, about Jesus, and he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Right? It says, these things Jesus was explaining plainly. Or another way to put it, he was explaining it clearly. Right? There was no mystery or ambiguity in what he was saying. Right? This is what the Messiah came on earth to do. Right? This was his mission, and this is how it was going to happen. Right, the leaders are going to turn Jesus over and they're going to have him crucified on the cross. And then that's not just what's going to happen. Right? This is what needed to happen. Right? If Jesus was going to be the one and only atoning sacrifice for our sins, there was no other way. But not to fear, because he would rise again from the grave three days later, as he said. But Peter, right, Peter he, he didn't want 
anything to do with what Jesus had to say. Right? Jesus is in the middle of teaching. Right? He's in the middle of teaching them how he's going to save his people, how he's going to save the world. Right? So, but Peter, he takes him aside, right? not to ask a question, but to rebuke him. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of hard to imagine. But you kind of get a sense of just how strong the perception of who the Messiah was supposed to be. I mean, can you imagine, like if, you know, in the middle of Pastor Henry's sermon, you know, he's here, like he's right here, and he's like on his main point, you know, and he's telling you that this is the most important thing that you will need to remember for today. And as he's telling you, Right? I don't know. Someone comes up and pulls him away, pulls him away from the pulpit, takes him over there, and he says, Hey, you know, that that's not right. I mean, it it's it's just so hard to fathom that, you know, someone would would be able to do something like that. I mean, you know, but that's exactly what Peter did. And again, I think that just kind of goes to show just how ingrained this idea of what the Messiah should look like is in the people, right? Even the likes of John the Baptist had to question it, right? And now, even Peter, right? Right after he confesses Jesus as a Christ and right after Jesus explains the plan, right? He still couldn't fully grasp or accept it, right? No way could this happen to our Messiah, He's supposed to come and reclaim the kingdom. Right? He's supposed to usher in a new era of peace for our people and restore our nation to its proper glory. Right? The Messiah is not going to die. This can't happen. And in the next verse, you see, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Jesus, now he turns the tables uh, on Peter, and at the same time, he delivers a very important lesson, one that's not just for the twelve to learn, um, but for anyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus. This is something that we all must learn as well. So seeing his disciples, right? Peter had pulled Jesus aside uh, so much that he was completely turned around from the disciples as he was addressing them. So he has to turn back and he looks at his disciples to rebuke Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Jesus wanted to make sure that they all knew. Right? In essence, he's saying that he is going to accomplish right? Jesus and Jesus will accomplish God's plan of redemption and anyone who attempts to get in his way is the enemy. And you, are, you are either going to be with him or you are against him. Right? There's no in between. Right? That's Matthew 12, 30, I believe. Right? You follow me and you're my disciple. Right? If you get in my way, then you are the disciple of the devil. I mean, Peter, he just went from a hero to zero in, in a matter of moments. 
But as shocking as Peter's actions may be, I think that you know, he can and should be afforded some grace, uh, especially by us. See, because anytime we put our own desires, our wants, our goals, anytime we put any of those things before the kingdom, then we're acting like the enemy too. Right? Any true disciple will put the things of God for their own. And as Jesus explains, or will explain, or as we'll find out in our next passage, true disciples don't just call Jesus the Christ. They follow him. Right? All the things that we want for ourselves, all the things we want in this life, they get put aside. Right? Whatever Jesus says to do, we do. And wherever he says we go, we go. And if he calls you to death, then you die. Right? You never refuse the king. Right? And you never refuse your savior. We can't think that Jesus is here, or we just can't think that Jesus is merely here to give us the things that we feel like we want or we feel like we need. Right? The crowds, right, they love Jesus. Right, or they thought they loved Jesus because he healed them. They loved him because they gave him food. And sure, right, I mean, anyone would love Jesus now if Jesus would make them rich or if he made them happy or if he solved any of the problems that they're having. But remember, when Jesus is teaching, when it got hard, right, do you remember what happened? Where did all the people go? Right, they all left, right, except the twelve. Why? Because these people, right, they're here for what they want. Right? And when God calls them to follow, they run away. The next passage explains what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus. Right? He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what good or for what does it profit a man that he gain to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So who is Jesus? That question, right? you need to make sure you know the answer. While it's still today, if you hear his voice in his word, don't harden your heart. Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? Right? And there's only one answer. Right? He is the Christ. If that's not your answer, then I would beg you to reconsider. It's going to determine how you answer this question, who do you say that Jesus is, will determine whether you spend an eternity in glory in heaven with him or an eternity in darkness and suffering in hell without him. 
Right? There's nothing else. There's no in-between. Right? You have to believe that he is who he says that he is. You would need to repent of your sins and believe in him who died for your sins and rose again and follow him. But if that is your answer and you do believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, then the encouragement or the hope is that we would be living like it. Are we living like a true disciple? And are we putting God's interests ahead of our own? Let's pray. Um, Dear God, uh, we thank you for your son, for in him uh, we have the words of eternal life. Uh, There is nowhere else for us to go but to follow you. Uh, Give us strength, uh, give us courage uh, to follow you uh, no matter what the cost, whether it costs us whatever whatever we have in this life, if it costs us our life, uh, we would gladly lay it down for you. And so we just pray uh, that your word uh, would convict us uh, for those who may not know you, may it convict them, uh, may it really reveal to them who you truly are so that they may come to know you. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.